You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, open our hearts to love you. Draw us to yourself and to your kingdom today. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Religion is capable of driving people to such dangerous folly that faith seems to me to qualify as a kind of mental illness. Religion is poison because it asks us to give up our most precious faculty, which is that of reason and to believe things without evidence. I'm not even an atheist so much as an anti-theist. Not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, But I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful. Obviously, these are not my words. They're the words of noted and outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins, the zoologist from Oxford University, and the late Christopher Hitchens, author and political commentator, respectively. Now, the quotes I've just read from these two men are explicitly and unequivocally against Christ and against Christianity. They're easy to pick out, right? It's easy for Christians to look at Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, or Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, on the shelf at a Barnes & Noble, and know before we even pick it up that these two guys are probably not the ones who should be forming and shaping our hearts in the image of Christ. Unfortunately, though, not all of the influences that direct our affections away from the Lord Jesus as he is revealed in his word are this explicit. Often things that would lead our hearts away from Christ and his kingdom are camouflaged. They don't stand out like a big red stop sign. They're a lot more subtle. They're words from mouths of wolves in sheep's clothing, someone who might speak in Christian language and biblical platitudes, but sets forth a message that's totally contrary to the gospel of Christ. One thing specifically, on the one hand, preachers of what we might call the prosperity gospel, uh, Benny Hinn and company, who say that if you believe enough, you have enough faith, you work hard enough, God will bless you, he will bless your bank account, you will have health and wealth and material prosperity guaranteed to you this side of glory. On the other hand, we might think of leaders in Christ's church who deny his very resurrection or his virgin birth. We might think of the late Marcus Borg, member of the Jesus Seminar and Oregon State professor of religion and former canon theologian of the Trinity Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Paul's concern in our Philippians passage for today is to make sure that we shift our eyes from falsehood, implicit or explicit, right in front of our faces or much more subtle, and shift them toward the truth of Christ, who he is as he's revealed in his word. If we are to grow closer to the Lord Jesus, we must move our eyes from people who are hostile to him, from things and from influences that are hostile to him, however subtle that hostility may be, and toward Christ, his word, and his people. 
Paul doesn't give us a vivid picture in our Philippians passage of the examples he has in mind for the Philippian church and for us even today. Maybe he doesn't list out the qualities of a great Christian example in verses 17, 18, and 19 because they're present elsewhere, right? He, he does this to the nth degree in First and Second Timothy. Maybe he doesn't list them for another reason because there are so many good examples in the rich and robust garden that is the Philippian church of the first century to the point that his readers might immediately see faces of their fellow parishioners or their elders when they hear, imitate me as I imitate Christ or some form of that statement from Paul. For my money though, I think it's because Paul has someone else in mind, someone who embodies the perfect photo negative of the false teacher he describes in verse 19. In Paul's mind, this is a picture probably not of an elder in the Philippian church, but of a God-man who didn't scorn the cross, but went to it willingly to save his people. Of a man whose God was not his belly, but was himself God, and who did the will of his Father in heaven perfectly. A man whose glory was and is in his suffering, and a man who set his mind not on earthly praise and glory, but on the eternal plan of God. So if you'll bear with me, I think I'd like to work from the middle of this passage outwards. I think it only makes sense if we do it that way. Verses 20 and 21 are the foundation on the one hand of verses 17, 18, and 19 above them, and on the other of chapter 4, verse 1, below it. Biblical scholars call this a chiasm, and it's where writers, especially in the Bible, would kind of construct things almost like a sandwich, right? We've got a couple of bookends, pieces of bread, and then it's supposed to set off the meat that's kind of in the middle, right? Um, So Paul gives us two commands in this passage. Those kind of form the bread situation here, and they set off what is already true of us and emphasize what's already true of us in verses 20 and 21, which sits right in between those two commands. Paul can only tell us to follow his example in verse 17 and to stand firm in verse 1. So those would be the two commands. Because we are already, already citizens of heaven. In other words, he's saying, since because your life is hidden with Christ in God, follow our example. Not follow our example to get your life hidden with Christ in God. It's crucial that we get that order right. Or to put it yet another way, Paul is saying, become who you already are in Christ. To be a citizen of heaven, according to Paul, is to eagerly await our Savior who comes from there. We'll one day take these fallen bodies and make them into glorious new creation bodies. To be a citizen of heaven is to cast our eyes away from whatever sort of ultimate foundational identity that we have constructed for ourselves. It's to take our eyes away from um, our reliance on our identity that we are Americans or Bama fans first or attorneys first or doctors first or on the other side of that, failures first or sinners first or disappointments first. 
If you are in Christ, you are no longer a permanent citizen of any of those realms. Your passport doesn't say sinner, disappointment, or even attorney, or doctor, or Auburn fan, or American on it. It says, kingdom of heaven, the place where Christ rules and reigns. Because Christ is your savior, because he lived to earn a perfect righteousness for you, and because he took your sin on himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, no identity is more central to who you are than the identity that Christ has spoken over you, than the identity that he gave you when he climbed up on that old rugged cross with your name and your face in his mind, that you are his and that you are a citizen of his kingdom. See, this has to be central again because before we can follow any example, before we can even gesture toward fulfilling any command, we must, must be firmly rooted in Christ. These commands Paul gives us must be the fruit of our justification, not the root of our justification. Before we can fulfill any gospel imperative, we have to be resting in a gospel indicative. That's why Paul's exhorting us to cast our eyes on people and on things that bring us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's where we live now. We don't live in the land of unbelief or self-reliance or love of money or status or fame. Those places are no longer home for us. Now hear me, that, that doesn't mean we don't ever sin, right? That, that's obviously not the case in the Christian life, but it does mean that our ultimate identity, our citizenship at bottom, our home, does not lie in those dark places any longer. Our citizenship lies in heaven with Christ. Now, your citizenship doesn't just have an individual element to it. It has a corporate element as well, as we see in the first three verses of this passage. It's hard to conceive of a situation in which there's only one citizen in a given state or nation, right? Citizenship kind of comes with other citizens. Um, <clears throat> you, me, the other citizens all contribute to an overall society. And so it shouldn't be surprising that Paul points us away from ourselves and toward others who are also citizens of Christ's kingdom. Other citizens provide us with an example, sure, but that example consists of help, consists of a new home, consists of love and of support, and of encouragement, of safety. Right after I graduated college, I moved to Sacramento, right? So from like Starkville, Mississippi to Northern California, it's like a little bit of a culture shock for me, right? Like it's kind of like nice weather out there. There are a lot more Priuses or Priya than there are in Starkville, right? Like it's just kind of a different cultural situation in a lot of ways. It's true the other way, too. When I started working at Sacramento High, I, like my kids were like, do, like, do people wear shoes in Mississippi? Like, uh, do y'all have indoor, like, do you ha have you been to a bathroom? And it, like, yeah, obviously the answer is yes. But <clears throat> so total culture shock, right? I don't know anybody out there. I don't have any friends. I like none of my family is from California. I, I don't think I had ever been to California before I moved out there. 
But the folks <clears throat> at the church that I found myself at one Sunday invited me not only into their parish, but into their lives. They had me over for dinner. They, they pulled me into their family rhythms. I'd put some of their kids to bed at night. They had me over to their house to pray with me and feed me um, and just be with me. Even when there was like clean laundry on the couch, hadn't been folded yet, sometimes dirty laundry on the couch. That's life with kids. Um, but they pushed me toward Christ. They gave me a place to belong because they were and are fellow citizens of Christ's kingdom. That's the benefit of citizenship. <clears throat> That's the benefit of being a member of a kingdom alongside others who are pushing you toward truth, toward Christ, toward who he is and who he's revealed himself to be in his word and away from falsehood, toward Christ and away from the world. This, friends, is at its most fundamental level what the church is. It's an outpost of sinners in a foreign land, but sinners who have a, a new banner over their lives, who are simply trying to be with God in a world that's different than who they are, in a fallen and imperfect world. You know, the older I get, the more John Bunyan's uh, conception of the Christian life just makes so much sense that Christians, the church, members, citizens of Christ's kingdom are nothing but pilgrims journeying together toward the celestial city, um, towards the new creation. I think it's hard today, and it really always has been, to stand firm, as Paul says in 4.1, to um, move our eyes away from the world and away from its trappings and away from all of the desires that come from sort of living and moving and having our being in the midst of a fallen, imperfect, sinful realm. It's hard to be shaped more by Christ than, than by the world. It's even harder, and it's probably impossible, to do that on your own. Christ has given you citizenship in a kingdom alongside countless other folks. So use them. Ask older Christians what their devotional lives look like and what impactful seasons they've had with the Lord and how that changed who they are. And ask fellow believers for prayer, for encouragement. Seek out advice from people in this service, in these pews, in these, not pews, these chairs, um, relative to your struggles. They've probably gone through them before. What's more, give the knowledge that Christ himself has given you. Invest in other believers. Share the wisdom that you've gained. Drive others toward Christ. And do all these things not out of a desire to earn Christ's acceptance. You can't do that. He's already done it for you. But as a result of having been given his acceptance and love. This is what it means to be a citizen of heaven, a citizen of Christ's kingdom. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity in the Bible. You'll be a Christian engaged in Christ's church, or you'll be a Christian on the ropes. Jesus wants so much more for you than that. He wants to bless you through his people. He wants to love you through his people 
today and every day, he's drawing you to himself through his church, through his word, through the sacrament. In Christ and in Christ alone, there is water without price. You'll never get that from the world. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.